Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have your Bible, you can scroll in the bulletin to page 7. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides of the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the raw meat cooked in water but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking into uh, the book of Exodus um, as a part of our current series. And uh, we get to this passage about the Passover. The Passover is uh, one of the three mandated meals in ancient Hebrew culture. And this passage is really going to teach us why. You see, Moses, he was sent by God to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt. God's people, they were enslaved in Egypt. Egypt is the most powerful empire in the world to date. And God, the king, he says, I am the Lord. We see that here. He says, let my people go so that they would worship me, so that they may worship me. And the Pharaoh, he asks a very fair question. He says, why? Who is the Lord that I should obey? In other words, what is so unique about your God in a nation that is filled with gods that they worship? And the answer, God sends the plagues. But there's no better answer to that question, who is the Lord, than this passage, the final plague. Because for the Jews, the Passover meal, their observance of the Passover meal, Christians, we continue in what we've learned from the Passover. Now looking back at Jesus, we take what we've learned from the Passover meal and we continue this in the Lord's Supper today. We call that the communion. That is the central act of the identity of God's people because it tells us who God is, who is the Lord that we should obey. This is the last plague. It places an accent mark uh, on that answer that God gives. There are three things we're going to look at today. What is it? The Passover. What is it? Uh, what is the sacrifice? Two, why is it important? What is the history behind it? Lastly, how do we apply it? What is it? Why is it important? How do you apply it? First, we're going to look at what is the sacrifice? What is the lamb? Uh, what is this, this Passover? God calls the Pharaoh. God calls the Pharaoh. Now, this is a greater king 
calling on a lesser king, as powerful as the Pharaoh is. You got to remember, the Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the world at that time. But this is a greater king than he calling on this lesser king to set his people free, to let them go. You have to understand, these are the rules of engagement in the ancient times. In ancient times, if a vassal king, a lesser king, doesn't pay tribute, if he doesn't acknowledge the greater king, that was an act of war. That was an act of treason. And the pharaoh, this lesser king, he refuses. And so we're starting to see the onslaught, the ten plagues. This is the last plague. What is it? Verse 12, God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn in Egypt. But then verse 23, Moses, he's speaking to uh, Israel, the Israelites, about the Passover. He says, the Lord will not permit the destroyer to enter into your houses to strike you down. That's what he says. When God says, that night, the destroyer will come, what he's saying is this. On one night, in this one place in time, my full justice is coming. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be preliminary. It's going to be provisional, but it is going to be devastating. I am about to, I am about to unleash the most inst- unstoppable force in the universe, the destroyer. And justice is going to pass through the greatest military army, the greatest, most political power in the world known to date, and he's going to do it with ease. He's going to do it without resistance. It's going to be like a hot knife right through butter. It's going to be at will And yet the one thing that can save you, the one thing that can protect you, is a lamb. What does that mean? This passage, God provides, all you've read really, is that God is God providing instructions, preparing for this Passover meal. I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to eat that lamb. That's verse 8. I want you to eat it with your family. That's verse 3. I want you to, I want you to put the blood of the lamb on the cross post of the door. That's verse 7. He even teaches us how to dispose of the lamb. That's verse 10. And that's it. Essentially, that's the passage. Now think about this. God's saying, nothing's going to stop what's about to get unleashed. Not your strength, not your, not your willpower, not your intelligence, not your power, not your wealth, not your pedigree, not your education, not your culture, not your goodness. No matter how good you are, it doesn't matter. It's why the lamb First of all, it's why it's lamb. It's because he's weak and helpless and stupid and insignificant. Because the only way that you can ever be saved is through your weakness, your helplessness, acknowledging your foolishness, acknowledging your insignificance with respect to the king. That's what it is, the sacrifice. Well, why is it important? What's the significance? You have to understand the greater, the greater biblical context, the background of this lamb. You first see it in Genesis chapter 22. Now, we covered this not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. You have Abraham and Isaac. Abraham just doted on Isaac. Abraham just loved Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 22, God approaches Abraham. He tells Abraham, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. And this just completely ruins. It just devastates Abraham. Why? You see, our culture, the mark of success in life is what? It's your degrees. It's your, your educational status. It's your wealth. It's based on your career. It's based on what you can do. That's what gives you status. You earned it. 
But in ancient times, the mark of success is not what you do. You sacrificed individual success and accomplishments for the success of the family. The family was everything. You were born into this. You didn't earn it. And so family success, it, the success of that family, it transfers over to you. It was everything. So for example, if a member of your family committed a crime, if a member of your family did something that was shameful, the entire family would experience shame. In a sense, that person's shame was transferred. The actual theological term is imputation. It was imputed to everybody. Now we say in our culture today, well, if a, if a member of my family acts shamefully, that's on them. That's not on me. I'm not responsible for something he did. You have to realize you are much more, even in our Western society today, you are much more a product of the influence of your community and your family around you than you realize. How so? You got to think about this. First, your genes. You didn't earn your genes, not your genes. I'm talking about your DNA. You didn't, you didn't earn your DNA. You didn't work for your DNA, right? But if you think about it, your genes determine how you look. Your genes largely, they say, scholars today say that determines largely your intelligence. You didn't earn any of those things. Secondly, any privilege you were born into or any privilege you were not born into, any lack thereof, you didn't earn that either. You were born into it. You may be responsible for your actions. Yes, absolutely. But even that, how you process suffering, how you process humiliation, how you process failure and shame and embarrassment, how you process your accomplishments and blessings in your life. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that your environment defines you. I'm not saying that your environment determines who you are, but it definitely is a shaping influence. Case in point, after the Sandy Hook incident in Connecticut years ago, after the Virginia Tech incident, uh, the shooting incident after the Columbine tragedy, was re which was really like the, the grandfather father of all these tragedies, what the journalists and the commentators and the scholars, what did they focus on? They focused on the families, the upbringing of the shooters. They all said there's, a, there's some kind of responsibility. This is a Western culture, the most westernized civilization in the world, it's saying that there's a responsibility. It's either active or passive for what the community around these men, these that they did. It's, there's some active or maybe pa passive responsibility around something that these people did or didn't do. And it hit so deep. I mean, the entire community, it's so deep. Everybody around the, around the country, they felt affected by it. You see, we in our civilization today, we have an unbalanced view of the influence of family or the influence of society and culture in our lives. But the ancient times, in ancient times, they had a much more balanced view of family. They had a much more balanced view of society and culture than we do today. And they placed a lot of value on the firstborn son. Wealth was centralized around the firstborn son. And in a sense, because of our sin, our sin was carried around like a debt. God treats it like a debt. And so God placed a price. The price for your redemption fell, was concentrated on the firstborn son. And so every firstborn throughout the Old Testament, the firstborn represents, in a sense, the centralization of all of your wealth, but also the centralization of all of the sin of a family, your sin. 
All your wealth and all your sin was concentrated on the firstborn. And so in order for you to be redeemed, he had to be ransomed. So when God said to Abraham, I want you to offer up your firstborn, it made complete sense to Abraham. I mean, it ruined him in a sense. It devastated him. It was his only son. He waited decades for the son to be born, but he understood that God was calling in a debt. It was his right. Isaac had to die. He had to obey. And so Isaac had to pay the price. But it's Abraham's son. It was his only son. And so he struggles all the way up this long journey up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac, but he never once questioned God. Not once did he question him. Now you think Abraham would have struggled with God's promise to him. God said, by grace, I will redeem the world, your society, I will redeem your community through Isaac. So he's struggling with how does the promise of God play out here if I'm going to sacrifice him? I mean, I get that the, sac- that the sacrifice will satisfy the justice of God, but how does it satisfy the mercy or the grace of God? And so in Genesis chapter 22, verses 78, Isaac says, I see the wood, I see the knife, I see the fire. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, what? God will provide the lamb. In other words, if God is just and we focus on the justice of God, you're going to be the sacrifice. You're going to be the lamb. You are my lamb, my little lamb. You're going to be the sacrifice. But if God is gracious, if God is merciful, he will provide a substitute for you. He will provide another lamb himself so that my little lamb will not be sacrificed. I mean, my little lamb, to sacrifice my lamb as a father. Friends, I mean, you got to know, my, my son has been sick for several days. And, you know, my son was born during the whole COVID lockdown. And so this is probably, he just entered into daycare. And he's now experiencing all the illnesses that come. Some of you, you've been through it and you're like rolling your eyes. Like, I have this, I've averaged like three hours of sleep for the last two weeks. He's already going through like teething and he's going through, it's, it's like, it's like hell for our family. But, but anyways, like he's, he's, he's struggling and you know, we've been up, I've been up since like three in the morning today. It's been like that for, for our family. But you know, it's funny because when you look at your child and you look at your child and he's suffering, you give anything to take his place because when he's suffering, you're suffering. That's the love of a father. For his child. Abraham has to do an incredible thing. He's got to sacrifice his son. He's got to sacrifice his son to fulfill the promise of God, a promise that he can't reconcile because is it justice or is it grace? Is it justice or is it mercy? And he's trying to reconcile that to, to sacrifice his son. It's going to ruin his life. Some of you, were, you're still stuck on, well, I don't get why the sin, why this debt requires a sacrifice. Why does it require blood at all? I mean, can't God just let us, let us go? Can't God just forgive? I mean, he's a loving God. We always emphasize the love of God. If he's truly loving, can't he just forgive? And I, I got to submit to you that a God that just lets you go is not truly loving. You see that? He's, he's loving because he's just. Think about this. The Bible says that we're all created in the image of God. So, when somebody seriously harms you or wrongs you, how do you feel? It feels like, if you've been betrayed, it feels like that person owes a debt to you. And that debt is going to be proportional to the extent of your relationship with that person. 
and the extent of the sin that was committed against you. So if you have a close friend, we all have somebody we consider our closest friend. If you take your closest friend, very, very intimate in relationship with you, even a hint at something can completely shake you up. Isn't that true? Why? Because even the smallest debts with somebody that intimate and that close cannot be overlooked. So what happens is either you're going to pay them back for their sin, right? Which means they're going to pay the price, or you're going to have to forgive them. You're going to have to let them go. When they pay the price, eventually what happens, if you see them suffering and because they're paying the price, eventually your compassion will set in, and that rift and that chasm starts to close between the two of you. Okay, you suffered enough. I know you're sorry, we say. But the Bible says this, if you continue to do relationships like that, eventually that'll change you. Because if you're looking for evil to happen to a person and that makes you feel good about it until a certain level that you define, you're the judge. What happens is that you can't handle that because you're not the judge. You don't know three-dimensionally everything that, t- that took place that, that resulted in what happened between the two of you, right? You know your side of the story, and we all think our side of the story is the objective perspective, right? But what happens is when you're looking for pain and suffering to happen to another person, eventually that's going to change you. It's going to embitter your soul. You'll feel good for a moment, but what really happens is the evil that you wanted happening to that other person starts to corrode your own soul, corrodes your heart. But on the other hand, you can forgive. But that's got a price too. That's costly. Because that means that every time you want to hurt somebody, That means every time somebody says something good about that person, you want to interject and say something, well, let me tell you what really happened. Let me tell you what this person's really like. Every single time you want to damage that person's reputation, and you say, well, this is justice, and you don't do that. When you don't do it, it's painful. It's costly. You're paying the price. Somebody's got to pay. It's somebody's blood. Somebody's sweat. Somebody's tears are going to get shed. Either they pay, but if they pay, what happens is, what happens is the bitterness enters into you if you make them pay. But if you pay the price, the Bible says if you pay the price, your anger actually dies. That's the only way to end the anger once and for all. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's going to change you too. It's going to make you softer. It's going to make you humbler. It's going to make you more patient. It's going to make you more gentle, more loving. Think about it. God, I mean, God forbid if somebody murders or just really, really hurts your child. Would you be satisfied if the judge says, well, you know, I mean, he's really sorry. And I mean, he's suffered enough. He's got a lot of shame in his life now. People are never going to look at him the same. He's paid his dues. We should just let him go. Would you be satisfied with that? No, you wouldn't. You know why? Because if that happens, then society pays. That child pays. You pay. It's like life is worthless. What happens then? Sin wins. Evil wins. Justice didn't happen. By the way, that conclusion, what I just said, is the conclusion that most brilliant modern scholars and secular philosophers today have come to. They've all concluded that life is meaningless. And because life is meaningless, because life is worthless, because everything happened by chance and is random, we're just molecules that have collided and millions of years later became human beings. Because of that, there's no such thing as morality. What's the purpose of being moral? It's all going to end in nothingness anyway. Then injustice wins. Sin wins. 
evil wins, then society pays. Somebody pays, you're going to pay. You see that? And as finite human beings, if we can't avoid that with our finite senses, with our limited sense of justice, how much more with an infinite God who's been infinitely grieved, who has an infinite sense of justice, who has, who has an infinite, over an infinite debt of sin. Abraham understood this. He knew this. He understood. So Isaac has to be sacrificed. But at that last second in Genesis chapter 22, God says, Abraham, stop. Do not sacrifice Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, God provides a ram caught in a thicket, and Abraham uses that ram as the substitute. That ram pays the price. It's his blood, it's blood that's shed. He is the provision. Now, pause. I'm going to fast forward all the way to Moses. God says, tonight, I'm calling in all the debts. Every firstborn in Egypt will die. And what's the only hope? A lamb. That's where it comes from. It's very clear in this text. I mean, first, you see the parallel. Abraham, Isaac, lamb, Israel, Egypt, the lamb, right? That's the parallel. It's very clear in this text. Verse 22, God says to Israel, and yeah, I mean, after, I, after you put the blood on the door, not one of you is to leave your house. Why? Because the destroyer is not just coming and looking for the Egyptians. He's looking for anybody. We're all, we all deserve to die. The Hebrews were no better than the Egyptians. God doesn't save us because we're better people. God doesn't save us because we have better morals. God doesn't save us because we're just good, we're doing good all the time. If we believe that, hey, you know, I, I'm just going to live a good life, that's it. Even at your best, the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, even at your best, we are wretched sinners. In your word of encouragement, what a wretched man I am. The Apostle Paul makes an admission. He says, he, this is the Apostle Paul at the spiritual peak of his life writing. And what he basically says is even at the spiritual peak of his life, he re recognizes that he is a wretched soul. That even at his best, he cannot conquer sin on his own. So if you go out there and you're confident because, you know, you're successful, you're a good person, a lot of us, you know, in the room, we still confuse being a Christian with having just good standing with other people, living a good life. But if you're confident because you have good morals, you have a good moral record, you're well-liked, you're a good son or a good daughter, that means a lot in Eastern culture, right? We say, yeah, I'm a good person, I have a great pedigree. Maybe some of us, it's all about having the right doctrines, I have great doctrine. None of that, none of that is going to help you. What's the hope then? In every house, something's going to die. Somebody's blood's going to get shed. It's either the firstborn or it's going to be the lamb in his place. Everybody deserves it. So either the firstborn gets what they deserve or the lamb gets what they deserve. The lamb is a substitute. At dinner that night, you looked at the lamb and you said, the only reason why I'm not the one that's going to be consumed tonight, well, I mean, you may not physically be consumed, but if you lose your firstborn, you're being consumed. I think we've established that. 
and you're looking at that lamb, you say, the only reason why I'm not being consumed tonight is because of this lamb. The only reason why our blood is not being spilled is because the lamb's blood has been spilled. And even that was temporary. Even that was provisional. They observed this every year, the Passover. Just like the ram that was caught in the thicket for Abraham and Isaac. This was God's provision. And God's saying that even though I'm delivering you tonight, you're still in debt. You're still in debt. You need a fuller rescue. You need a greater lamb because there's a greater issue with a greater debt of sin and that leads to a greater slavery that we're all in. And so we need a greater salvation through a greater sacrifice, through a greater savior. So according to the Old Testament laws, the lamb was sacrificed at the Passover meal. And so on on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, we just passed Yom Kippur this year, the high priest, one time a year, Annually, he would enter in to the most holy place. He would execute two things. One, he would call two animals. One was sacrificed. The other, right before that, the high priest would symbolically place all the sins of the people on on this goat, and he would lead him out of the city and kick him out, and he'd be left for dead. He'd be in the rough. He'd be left for dead outside the city. It was a representation of two things. One, you are, as sins, as sinners, we deserve to be cast out. The city meant life. The city meant community. Community means life, protection, all those things. So if you were cast out of the city, you were left for dead. Our sins leave us for dead. But he puts the sins on this goat. He would cast them out. Why? Because our sins have been taken away. That's what that means. Once a year, the high priest would do this. The lamb was sacrificed. The lamb represented a sacrifice for sin that was needed, a sacrifice for the debt. And the goat represented that the sins of the people would be taken away, and thus he was called the scapegoat. It was all provisional. It was all provisional. They were waiting. They were looking ahead for a true scapegoat to come. Centuries later, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, immediately upon encountering Jesus Christ, On the spot, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb and the scapegoat. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice to come. He is the lamb, and he takes away the sins of the world. So he's the lamb and the scapegoat. They're, the lamb and the scapegoat, they were just mere provisional until the true lamb, who is Jesus, and the true scapegoat arrives. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. It's customary for the head of the house to stand and give instructions, remind his family about the meaning of the Passover meal. That's what he would do every year. But when Jesus stands, he does two things, and he says two things about the Passover that would have completely shocked the disciples sitting with him. One, they would have expected to hear Jesus say, this is the bread of our affliction. Remember the slavery we were all under? This is the bread of our affliction. The ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we could be free, but that's not what Jesus says. That night, Jesus, instead, he says, this is the bread of my body. This is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer not just from physical or political or economic bondage, but from your sins, death. The second thing is there are three things at the Passover meal that you always had. One, you had the unleavened bread. So there's Jesus, he breaks the bread. 
okay, this is my body. Then you also had the wine. There's Jesus pouring the wine. This is my blood. Okay, I get that. Then you had the lamb. The lamb was the centerpiece, but there was no lamb at this dinner. There was no lamb at this meal. The lamb was the centerpiece. What kind of Passover has no lamb? You can't have Passover without the lamb. That's like Isaac asking Abraham, I get we're going to sacrifice a lamb. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? But they missed it because the lamb was present. Jesus Christ removed the customary provisional lamb from the Passover meal. And by that, what he was saying was, beginning tonight, I am the real lamb. This is all about my death. This is all about my sacrifice. Jesus is the true centerpiece to which all the lambs and the goats and the scapegoats in the entire Bible points. He's saying, tonight, I'm giving you ultimate salvation, the salvation that even Moses looked to, and I will remove our sin, your sins. I will remove the debt. I will pay the debt once and for all. You gotta take me in. Like any meal, you gotta take it in. You gotta consume it. You gotta digest my word. You gotta trust it in your soul. How do you apply it? That's the last point. How do we apply it? Through Abraham, we see sin as a debt. And through Abraham, we see that the provision can only come from God. Remember, remember Abraham, he's carrying the wood up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. That word wood, we've said this in the past, is the Hebrew word eights. It's a very particular word for wood, right? It's only used or particularly used often in reference to the judgment of God. That's the word that appears in Abraham carrying the wood on which he would place Isaac for the sacrifice. That word later translated in the Greek refers to the cross. You see, firstborns, they weren't spared from sin because of some animal. They have a sin debt too. But God sacrificed only the firstborn. You know why? Because Jesus Christ would be the firstborn of God. It was representative Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the only son of God. He's the true Isaac. Like, like Isaac was to Abraham, that was Jesus to God. So when Jesus is suffering on the cross, in a forensic way, God was suffering. You see that? Jesus, he's the lamb of God. He's the ultimate provision. He's the ultimate scapegoat that's going to end all other scapegoats. And like the scapegoat, he was crucified outside the city. He was cast out of life. You see that? He was left for dead. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb to end all sacrifices. And so he's the ultimate salvation. He's the ultimate rescue. He is the ransom. God spared Abraham's son, Isaac, and he spared the Hebrew firstborns in Egypt because he would provide the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb himself, his own son, his own little lamb. He's saying, one day, I am going to walk that mountain. That mountain was Calvary. And I'm going to walk that mountain with my son. And he would be placed on the wood, the cross of God's judgment. God stopped Abraham, but no one was going to stop this. The destroyer would come, 
and the wrath of God would pour out on his son as a penalty for our sins and he would truly be left for dead. You know why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been left for dead. He has forsaken me. Why? So that he could pay the debt and he would pay it. God has come to collect it in full. He would be the ransom. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the love of God. And the love of God doesn't happen in spite of the justice of God. It happens through the justice of God. Through the justice of God poured out on Jesus, we can see the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And on the cross, so on the cross, when that perfect and holy lamb of God cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who, who paid the sin debt? Jesus Christ, he dies, you know, at twilight. You know why? Because you always sacrifice the lamb at twilight. So John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. You know what that means? Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the innocence of Jesus. Look at, look at the holiness of Jesus. When you see that, you see your sinfulness. That is your sin on the cross. You know how that happened? There was a transfer. Your shame, the shame of the family, is transferred to Christ. Whenever you look at the cross, we reflect. That's what it means to own your sin, to realize your sin, to confess your sin, to be amazed at the grace of God, to be amazed at the love of God, to be able to take that in, your sin, Christ's holiness, Christ's sacrifice, the cost, the love of God, you take it in. Do you trust it? Or are you still working to figure it out on your own? Are you still working out guilt on your own? Are you still working to build your own reputation as a good person? To be amazed at the love of God, to take it in, to trust it, that's what it means to digest it and consume it. That's why we take in the communion to grasp it. It's to behold. You know, it doesn't take any work to behold. When something is beautiful, you don't have to force yourself like, to look at it, right? I mean, you just behold. If you have to try, you're not beholding. You see that? How do you apply? One, own your sin. Own it. You've wronged God. You've wronged your neighbors. A debt it must be paid. That's the bad news. And you can't do anything to restore or reconcile what's cosmically been broken between you and God. We sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, and that's the second thing in applying it. That's how we apply it. Behold the cross of Christ. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Our sins, our shame, our guilt has been imputed and transferred to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness, his holiness, his faithfulness is transferred to us, his people. Can you grasp that? Can you behold that? If you do, it makes you humble. If you do, it makes you bold. You don't have to keep your head down like you've wronged the world. You have. But Jesus said it's finished. The price has been paid. The actual Greek, the price has been paid in full. The transaction has been made. And it's been transferred to your credit. 
Do you trust that? That's gonna make you more bold. It's gonna enable you to take some risks in life for God's glory, for your good. If you don't believe that Jesus had to die for you, that God is a God of love, if you don't believe that Jesus had to die for you, then you're not really remembering the Passover. You're not beholding Jesus. Um, you gotta think about this. We get most angry at the people that we love the most because you know they can't get it together. We get so angry, why? Anyone who's ever loved anybody knows this. There's wrath because there's love. So even in the wrath of God, it's because of his love for his people. There's infinite wrath. There was infinite love, you see that? But God also made a way, he made a provision, an ultimate provision. So his own son, God's firstborn, paid the price of our sin debt. And that assures us of two things. One, it's the end of evil. There will be an end of evil, an end to injustice, an end to oppression and sin once and for all. God is just. One day he will collect in full. Otherwise, sin and evil would win, right? But secondly, it also assures us of God's love for his people, his children. You gotta, let, you gotta trust that. It's not just about believing it. Do you trust it? Is your life backing it up? Are you being shaped by that? I'm gonna invite you to come to the table today. Come to the table. <clears throat> it's an opportunity for you to consume and digest this amazing reality of the cross. Let's pray together.